So, thanks a lot for coming to this uh, first lecture on symbolism. So, I'm lecturing this term on five uh, slightly odd Shakespeare plays, partly because they're uh, the decreasing number that are left uh, from the ones I've already done. Uh, like the previous lectures, these will all be recorded and put on iTunes U. So, if you're wondering why I'm not lecturing on Hamlet or something, it's because I've already done it and it's already uh, available. So, there are 27 lectures on Shakespeare's plays available on iTunes U as part of the Approaching Shakespeare series. There's also a series on other Renaissance plays called Not Shakespeare that you might find uh, interesting too. Each lecture follows the same pattern. I try to focus uh, the kind of critical history of the play via a particular um, insistent or self-evident question. Is Prospero Shakespeare? Why is Falstaff fat? How sad is King Lear? I give a short summary of the play so you can understand the lecture, even if you haven't read it, that might be more necessary this time than ever. Uh, and I try to suggest some of the ways you might link it to other plays, chronologically, thematically, or critically. So coming up this term are All's Well That Ends Well, Merry Wives of Windsor, Two Henry VI, Two Gentlemen of Verona, and today, Cymbeline. So, Cymbeline is one of Shakespeare's last plays, written in 1610. And as we'll see, it's got a lot of thematic affinities with other plays of the same period, most notably Winter's Tale and The Tempest. Uh, it also fits alongside uh, romance tragicomic plays, which Shakespeare co-authors with Fletcher at the end of his career, Two Noble Kinsmen and All Is True, or Henry VIII. Simon Foreman the astrologer and, and quack doctor, went to see the play in April 1611, and he wrote a short account of it that I'm going to discuss in a minute. So what I'd normally do at this point in the lecture is to summarise the play, but with some implications that I want to discuss in more detail as we go along, summarising the play is quite difficult in the case of Cymbeline. There is an awful lot of plot. It's as if Shakespeare threw all the elements of his plays into this one before the reduced Shakespeare company uh, ever got their idea. It's got a cross-dressed woman, it's got beheadings, it's got counterfeit death, uh, poisonous potions, battles, intense father-daughter relationships, unwarrantedly jealous husbands, innocent wives. But to put it another way, it's as if someone ransacked the filing cabinet of the structural theorist Vladimir Prop and emptied out all 31 of his functions of narrative, from absentation and interdiction to transfiguration and marriage. If you look these up, they're fabulous fun for all kinds of things, including uh, Cymbeline. So all I'll say about the plot of the play for now is enough to set up the question I want to organise the lecture around. Cymbeline takes place in ancient Britain, and it begins with the king Cymbeline refusing to pay tribute money to the Romans. Cymbeline's daughter Imogen, uh, or in some editions Imogen with a double N, this is a very, very vexed question in Shakespeare studies, and even though I do like those kinds of arcane details, I can't get too excited about Imogen, Imogen, um, uh, but it's good to know about. Uh, Imogen, or Imogen, the, ki the uh, king's daughter, has secretly married a commoner, Posthumus. And when the king finds out, he banishes Posthumus in a fury. In exile, 
Posthumus has a bet with the wily man of the world, Iachimo, that Imogen would always be faithful to him. Iachimo goes to Britain to test her. Shakespearean men, you'll realise, are always jealous. Think of Much Ado's Claudio or Othello, or closer to the time of composition of Cymbeline, Leontes in Winter's Tale, except when they should be. The Emperor Saturninus in Titus Andronicus doesn't seem to realise that his wife's copping off with Aaron the Moor, even when she gives birth to a baby described uh, in the play's uh, very problematic racial lexis, a black tadpole. For the rest of the play, Cymbeline is about how this mistaken and misdirected jealousy is sorted out against the backdrop of a battle with the Romans over this issue of tribute. There's one other major plot element to introduce at this point. Cymbeline's two sons were stolen away from court by a disgruntled courtier in their infancy. Of course they were. They've grown up as outlaws in the Welsh countryside where Imogen, their sister, encounters them when she's dressed as a boy. Now there's lots more plot, as I've said, but that's probably quite enough for now. The point I want to get to is that at the end of the play, when the identities have been revealed, and the relationships repaired, and the twists and turns are unmasked, the British beat the Romans. The Roman general Lucius is brought in with a number of prisoners, and they stand captured on stage as witnesses to the multiple revelations of the final scene. Then Cymbeline announces, although the victor, we submit to Caesar. Although the victor, we submit to Caesar and to the Roman Empire, promising to pay our wanted tribute. So although the victor, we submit to Caesar, promising to pay our wanted tribute. So, you've refused to pay the tribute, you've gone to war on the point, you've won the war, and now you're going to pay the tribute. Why? I want to try and focus on the oddness, the unnecessariness of this plot twist and ask, why does Cymbeline agree to pay the tribute to the Romans? Why pay that tribute? And that's the question I want to try and tie uh, the various strands of my lecture into. Let's approach this first via the question of genre. I've already suggested that Cymbeline has close affinities with other of Shakespeare's late plays, especially The Tempest and The Winter's Tale. Like them, it draws on elements of romance in the medieval narrative sense, including storytelling stretched across time and geographical space, an interest in family dynamics, particularly between fathers and daughters, set against wider political issues, and favoured tropes including disguise, uh, revelatory birthmarks, prominent and active heroines, and a high emotional temperature. To some extent, the, this 19th century designation, nobody calls these plays romances until Edward Dowden uh, in the Victorian period uh, coins this term. But to some extent, this 19th century designation overlaps with an early modern one, the fashionable new genre of tragicomedy, tragicomedy, particularly associated with Shakespeare's collaborator and his successor with the King's Men, John Fletcher. The tragicomedy is the coming thing. It's the thing that will outlast Shakespeare's career, which is coming to an end, and which will dominate the theatre uh, during the 16-teens and 1620s. 
Tragic comedy sometimes presents impossibly ominous situations, the tragedy bit, but are miraculously resolved, the comic bit. And sometimes it mixes a kind of tragic sensibility within a comic framework. Cymbeline conforms to this to some extent, bringing the apparently dead back to life and reconciling the jealous husband with his wronged wife. But it doesn't really conform to Fletcher's oft-quoted definition of tragic comedy, which is included to the preface, in, included in the preface to his play *The Faithful Shepherdess*. Fletcher's play *The Faithful Shepherdess*. <coughs> Fletcher describes a tragic comedy as a play that wants, i.e., lacks, wants deaths, which is enough to make it no tragedy, yet brings some near it, which is enough to make it no comedy. Quite an interesting de definition of tragedy and comedy, in fact. Uh, tragedy is about deaths, comedy is about uh, no one being too close to death. Uh, and tragic comedy somehow blurs those two. But in fact, there are deaths in Cymbeline, most notably the, heading, the beheading of the king's creepy stepson, Cloton, whose mother wants him to marry Imogen. The scene in which Imogen cuddles up to this bloody corpse in the mistaken grief that the headless body dressed in her husband's clothes is indeed posthumous, is a really good example of this play's uneasy tone. Many of Cymbeline's moments of high emotional authenticity, including perhaps its most famous lines, fear no more the heat of the sun, are in the context where they appear in the play, ironically undermined. Fear no more the heat of the sun is a funeral threnody for a corpse that we, the audience, know is not really dead. Imogen has taken one of those ubiquitous Shakespearean potions that only mimic death, just as her tears over this bloody man are misplaced. They're directed towards a man she hates rather than loves. Fear no more the heat of the sun is, perhaps not incidentally, the Shakespearean quotation Winnie is trying to remember while she's buried waist deep in the ground, later neck deep, in Samuel Beckett's play, Happy Days. So Cymbeline here is Romeo and Juliet rewritten so that Juliet cries unwittingly over the body of Paris, thinking it is Romeo. And in so doing, undermines the difference between Paris and Romeo, which was so substantial that she herself would die for it later <coughs> in the play. This sardonic manipulation of tone is one of the ways Cymbeline teeters between genres, somehow at once de-authenticating its own moments of apparent sincerity and thereby destabilising our response. It's a tone we might usually <coughs> think of via critical concepts that enjoy those kind of switchback moods, irony, kitsch, camp. What seeing Cymbeline alongside these other late plays gives us, perhaps, as a reason for the capitulation on the tribute, is a point about forgiveness. Shakespeare's tragedies, as you know, tend to hurtle headlong from catastrophic error to ultimate <coughs> destruction. There's no time to reflect or reconcile or get a second chance. Uh, you screw up, you die. The romances seem to revisit those tragic scenarios Explicit to, explicitly to imagine what could happen next. How might time heal this uh, terrible situation? What might it be if you screw up and you have to live with the consequences rather than you die? 
In The Winter's Tale, Leontes is an Othello who has to live with the consequences of his jealousy for 16 long years and then is rewarded by the return of his wife. In The Tempest, Prospero is a hamlet, both the old king and the young prince, who chooses virtue over vengeance and gets his power back. In Cymbeline, the king is a Lear who is reunited with his daughter. The comparison with the text of Lear that's published in the folio in 1623 is a really, really interesting one. Most critics now think Shakespeare was reworking his play King Lear around the same time as his writing Cymbeline. So perhaps this mood of forgiveness is one way to understand the last scene of the play. Separated lovers in Shakespeare's tragedies are often representative of larger socio-political conflicts, from the feuding Montagues and Capulets in Romeo and Juliet to the Greek and Trojan sides in Troilus and Cressida, perhaps even including Othello and Desdemona against the background of the Turkish threat to Venetian Cyprus. And at the end of Cymbeline, there's some sort of analogy between the reconciled couple, Posthumus and Imogen, and the reconciliation between the Roman and British powers. It seems a general amnesty or a general mood of forgiveness. Okay, so so far I've talked about romance and tragic comedy as genres for this play. There are two more possibilities I want to touch on. One relates to the play's first publication. Like many of the plays from the second half of Shakespeare's writing career, and like its own compromised hero, um, uh, Leonatus, Posthumus Leonatus, Cymbeline is published posthumously. It has to wait until the first folio of 1623 to be printed. You may remember that one of the only explicit editorial interventions into that big volume of collective plays, and the one that gives it its full title, is the division into genres. Master William Shakespeare's Comedies, Histories and Tragedies. Cymbeline appears as the very last play of the 35 listed on the catalogue page, at the end, perhaps surprisingly, of the tragedies. In some ways it seems as if the play has been placed there because of its title. Singular names are either histories or tragedies in Shakespeare, and the folio, for reasons that we won't go into now, has decided that history, for its purposes, is a box set of serial medieval English kings from John onwards. So it's not the ancient histories of Macbeth or King Lear, even though those plays share with Henry IV and Henry V, uh, a common source in Hollinshed's uh, historical chronicles. And it's not either Julius Caesar or Coriolanus works that are about history but not English. So history by the folio has become medieval English history. Um, so Cymbeline wouldn't really uh, fit into that. So maybe we need to add tragedy into the mix of ex generic expectations the play evokes, even though it's a designation that sets up expectations the play does not entirely fulfil. Cymbeline is not the tragic hero of a play that, like much of Shakespeare's last work, explores this strange post-tragic space of possibility. And finally, generically, and perhaps most closely associated with the central question of this lecture, the tribute payable to the Romans, Cymbeline looks like the last of Shakespeare's Roman plays. In all his plays uh, about ancient Rome, 
Shakespeare shows Rome in conflict with itself, with enemies without, with contrary views of the world. And he usually does that from the point of view of Rome as the centre of interest against which others, variously Goths, Egyptians or Volskians, are distinguished. We've got something similar here, but it's been flipped. Britain, the non-Roman pole in this binary, is the centre of the action. Rome is the other. Rome is the alternative viewpoint, not the central one. It's perhaps the ultimate development of Shakespeare's interest in Rome throughout his career, uh, in which his heroes increasingly want to escape from Rome. Think about Antony in Antony Cleopatra, or about Coriolanus, maybe. Um, here we have a Rome that, that the play has escaped from, that is itself decentered and marginal. These hybrid generic influences and expressions point to something that I think is useful for thinking about this play more widely. Hybridity, hybridity, a term from cultural and post-colonial studies, has a number of contact points with Cymbeline. Hybridity signals culture or cultural artefacts produced by the blending of two parent cultures into a new uh, and distinct form. The language of the generations is interesting for linking the structural and formal qualities of this play with the familial dynamics <coughs> of its plot. If hybridised cultural forms combine the qualities of parent cultures into something new, and if in doing so they have the capacity to disrupt uh, or challenge those perspectives, hybridity has a, an affinity with uh, intergenerational strife. Uh, the hybrid product is at odds with the parent cultures uh, that produced it and from which it, against which it wants to define itself. We could think then uh, about hybridity uh, as, a, as a framework for the relations between parents and children in this play, between Cymbeline and Imogen, between Cymbeline and his stolen sons, between the wicked queen, Cymbeline's second wife, who's so wicked she can only be called queen, uh, and her son, Cloton, and between Posthumus, named because his birth postdates the death of his father, and his own parents, who he sees in a kind of spectacular dream vision sequence after the battle with the Romans. Uh, it's a great stage direction uh, in the folio. Enter, as in an apparition, Sicilius Leonatus, father to Posthumus, an old man attired like a warrior, with an ancient matron, wife and mother, his wife and mother to Posthumus. It's a moment of particular spectacle uh, when Posthumus's family summon up the god Jupiter, who the folio stage direction tells us descends in thunder and lightning sitting upon an eagle, he throws a thunderbolt. We might want to think of this unexpected sequence, the sequence of Jupiter, the god Jupiter uh, coming down on an eagle. Everything about it is unexpected. I mean, that, that this is a world with Jupiter in it is, all, is, is quite weird for a start. Uh, that an eagle would come down from the uh, heavens above the stage is also probably uh, quite unexpected. Um, so we might think about the element of surprise here as itself a kind of hybrid form. The intrusion of a distinctly visual moment into the generally verbal texture of Shakespearean dramaturgy. For some critics, this relates to a new style of drama prompted and fostered by 
the increased visual palette afforded by the new indoor theatres. The Kingsman Shakespeare's company began to perform at the indoor theatre of Blackfriars in 1608. I'll talk a bit about Blackfriars and the impact uh, its elite <coughs> audience might have had on Shakespeare's plays in the lecture on Coriolanus. But what we might want to think about in relation to Cymbeline is an increased focus on sight as the dominant economy in indoor theatre culture. <coughs> Recent work prompted by the building of a Blackfriars-inspired indoor theatre, the Sam Wanamaker, as part of the Globe Complex on London's South Bank, has begun to explore many of the visual tropes from <coughs> directional candlelight, the chiaroscuro possibilities of darkness and shadow, to the shimmering shot silk worn by wealthy patrons that made them a glittering spectacle to rival the players. We're interested in the visual dynamics of uh, the indoor theatres, not least because of this uh, experiment um, uh, laboratory in the San Wanamaker. Now, relatively few of Shakespeare's plays rely too much on the visual. It's actually quite hard to think of a play where you actually need to be able to see something in order to understand what's happening. Shakespeare has, as we know, a thoroughgoing habit of verbalising all actions. Almost all stage actions are implied in dialogue. Dialogue which tells us where we are, what time it is, uh, whether it's night or day, um, uh, what, what, what it is we should be imagining that we see, for instance. Perhaps until the apparent revival of Hermione's statue at the end of The Winter's Tale, no play of Shakespeare's turns on a specifically visual denouement. You might argue with me, I guess, about the reconciliation of the twins in Comedy of Errors or in Twelfth Night. <coughs> but given that the two actors playing the twins probably didn't look that similar, it may be that that's actually uh, a kind of anti-visual uh, point uh, rather than a pro. Late plays, however, perhaps written particularly with Blackfriars in mind, or perhaps particularly with the high-end aesthetic of Blackfriars in mind, so Shakespeare's plays continue to be performed in both venues, in the Globe as well as Blackfriars, but Globe theatre productions probably change a bit because of the high status that's given to a kind of indoor theatre aesthetic, which is more expensive, more elite, and so on. The Descent of Jupiter, then, so thinking about, back, about the indoor theatres, the, the, the Descent of Jupiter from the heavens above the stage can seem... Uh, like special effects in a modern film, to be just because they can, rather than because they need to. It's a way of showing off a technical capability, rather than one that's necessitated by the plot. But it's also hybridising in another way. It be brings in the expensive visual effects popularised in the Jacobean court by masks, by court masks, as another generic influence. And thus, it participates in a wider aesthetic quarrel, often articulated by the violent disagreement between Ben Jonson on the words side and Inigo Jones on the set design side about whether words or spectacle are more significant in dramatic production. This is a big aesthetic quarrel uh, of the second decade of James's reign. If it, uh, indoor uh, indoor theatres like Blackfriars tend to prioritise spectacle, 
because they have better technical facilities, but also because of the relative proximity of audiences within a space where lighting is controlled. If you followed the controversies about the rebuilt globe on Bankside and its former director, Emma Rice, you may recall that shared light was one of the great points of controversy. That's to say, uh, the belief uh, of the globe that audience and stage must exist in the same unmanipulated light environment. That was the kind of red line uh, that they weren't uh, prepared to cross. So if the outdoor theatres are based on shared light, audience and stage in the same light conditions, indoor theatres can do something quite different with lighting technology, using candles on walls or pillars or in hanging candelabra or carried by actors, and using shutters to block out daylight, to light up particular scenes or areas and to darken others. We're not quite yet in the modern standard theatre where the audience is in pitch black and the stage is brightly illuminated. But in the Blackfriars, we are in an environment where lighting effects can highlight what should be seen and how. Now, Cymbeline's take on this is complicated. And if it was performed at Blackfriars, it was also probably performed at the Globe. That may account for it, but it may be a play which has to think about two different environments. It's one of the longest plays in Shakespeare's canon, almost 4,000 lines, only a couple of minutes shorter than Hamlet. If we take seriously the Royal Shakespeare Company uh, director Greg Doran's assessment of Shakespeare's verse jogging along at about 800 lines an hour, 800 lines an hour, the 4,000 lines of Cymbeline is well over four hours of dialogue. It will be hard then to say it marks a shift towards a more visual and less verbal form of theatre. But on the other hand, it's a play deeply interested in the dynamics of looking and I want to spend a bit of time on a scene I haven't yet mentioned to discuss this. Parting with Imogen when he's banished from Britain by Cymbeline, Posthumus gives her a bracelet, and she gives him a ring that was her mother's. He goes to Rome, and the other curiously hybridised aspects of Cymbeline is when it takes place, ancient Britain and Imperial Rome seem to coincide temporally with Renaissance Italy. Posthumus goes to Rome to meet a lot of fit, fashionable, cynical, well-educated young men straight out of Italian literary fiction. Rome in Cymbeline is both the ancient empire and the contemporary city. It comes as a shock later in the play to see the urbane uh, Renaissance uh, kind of courtier figure, courtier figure, Iachimo, among the Roman legionaries. This looks like a kind of mashup, quite distinct uh, times uh, and places. Uh, but there are other uh, historical palimpsests or hybrid historical palimpsests or hybrids uh, in this play. The prominently named Milford Haven. I'm going to talk more about the role of Wales in the country. That is not the marine mammal. In a moment. I think Wales is one of the, I mean, a marine whale is one of the things that's not in Cymbeline, which would be um, uh, quite a good um, kind of antidote to all the things that are. Um, I just don't think whether Shakespeare knows about whales with an age. I can't think of it, but you should write in and tell me if you can think of one. Um, oh, yeah, exactly. He knows they're in the clouds, that's right. Um, so, where, where have I got to? Yeah, so Milford Haven in Wales um, would have probably recalled the founding of the Tudor dynasty in the 15th century. It's the port where Richmond, 
landed to take the throne from the usurping Richard III, uh, as Shakespeare tells us at the end of Richard III. Cymbeline was supposed to have been king of Britain at the time of the birth of Christ. Another quite interesting uh, historical um, uh, conjunction. But the world of the play is that of the Renaissance court. A clock, for instance, strikes in Imogen's bedchamber. So Cymbeline occupies a non-continuous historical moment, partly because it splices material about the Romans in Britain with a contemporary prose story from the Italian writer Boccaccio, but partly because these kinds of hybridity are, I hope um, you're coming to see, its distinctive mode. But back to Posthumus and the importance of looking. Away in Rome, praising Imogen's beauty, Posthumus prompts one of his fellows, Iachimo, to a kind of rivalrous jealousy akin to that that Shakespeare explores with his rapist character Tarquin in the poem Lucrece. Tarquin uh, claims that he has been prompted by Lucrece's husband, Collatine's best boasts about his wife's perfections, that boasting has raised uh, her value uh, in this violent way. The two men, Posthumus and Iachimo, make a bet of 10,000 ducats, um, depending when we think this play takes place. That seems quite a lot of money. Remember, it's 3,000 ducats in The Merchant of Venice, and that causes quite a lot of problems. So here we've got 10,000 ducats um, and, uh, and Imogen's uh, ring. That's the, that, that's the bet. Imogen's ring uh, is, uh, will go to uh, Yakimo if he can bring proof that he has enjoyed the dearest bodily part of your mistress. What happens is that Yakimo goes to Britain to meet Imogen. He's charmed by her virtue and realises he's not going to be able to seduce her, but he gets himself smuggled into her chamber in a chest. As she sleeps, he opens the chest and creeps out to watch her. He gains such detailed knowledge of her body, particularly the mole on her left breast. Uh, it's a way, a kind of fairy tale trope about... Uh, a distinctive mark is really distorted and, and perverted and used in a quite different way. Um, uh, again, such detailed knowledge of her body and of the Ovidian decoration of her bedchamber, and he is able to slip Posthumus's bracelet from her sleeping arm, that he returns to Posthumus in Rome with clearly definite proof that he has had sex with her. The scene of Iachimo in Imogen's bedchamber is one of the most intense that Shakespeare ever wrote, and I think one of the most uncomfortable. It brings centre stage the sense of theatrical spectatorship as voyeurism, what Freudian analysis and cinema theory calls scopophilia, scopophilia, the erotic pleasure of looking, particularly the pleasure of looking at another person as an object. <coughs> Now, if we accept that the visual elements of theatre have been downplayed in the development of drama in the 16th century and are just now coming into prominence, we can see that scopophilia, the erotics of looking, is a relatively new dramatic concept. Like a hidden camera, uh, another kind of technological possibility for, for, for peeping in, uh, lots of technologies have been used um, uh, to peep in at private uh, uh, private kind of uh, happenings or private things. That's how early cinema is is advertised, kind of peep show, end of the peer kind of peep show. 
Um, uh, the, the indoor theatres are an early version of a new technology that allows us to see something more voyeuristically, allows us to see into places that we don't normally see. So like a hidden camera, Yakimo looks at Imogen, who cannot look back. His long speech of description turns her into an object of ekphrasis. But we also know that he means a harm to her more indirectly cruel than that of Tarquin to Lucrece. Uh, Yakimo likens himself explicitly to Tarquin at the beginning of the scene, in case we don't get the um, echo. Uh, Yakimo consumes and takes power by looking, but uncomfortably, so do we. For the Victorians, Cymbeline was a favourite play because they constructed Imogen as the most womanly of Shakespeare's heroines. Swinburne saw her as the immortal godhead of womanhood, and Ellen Terry, the actress whose 19th century performance of the play cemented its reputation in the period, remarked, I can find no fault in her. So the Victor for the 19th century, Cymbeline is one of Shakespeare's great plays. And that's always quite an interesting thing to look at, why certain <coughs> plays are popular at certain times. Um, uh, why is it that, we, uh, that the, for the Victorians, uh, Cymbeline uh, was, was important? Imogen came to be the epitome of what Coventry Patmore in a famous and indicative poem, now best known for the way in which Virginia Woolf rejected it as the angel in the house. That was how Imogen came to be seen. Despite, or perhaps because of that, perhaps there's a distinct thrill in imperiling this paradox. <coughs> the frisson of Imogen's endangered chastity is a deeply troubling one. Like Iakimo, we are voyeurs in a bedroom decorated in a distinctly and overdeterminately sexualized matter. If you Google Victorian images of Imogen, you'll see what I mean about the titillating depiction of imperiled, off-the-shoulder innocence. Uh, Imogen is at once uh, wearing a kind of um, uh, innocent, innocent kind of uh, person's nightgown, but it's also just kind of fallen open so we can uh, look at her. Uh, there's, a, there's a very weird erotics of uh, Imogen being so innocent, and that's what's so dangerously desirable uh, about her. Imogen's bedtime reading in Cymbeline is the rape of Philomel by Terius in Ovid's Metamorphoses, the prototype for the violence in Titus Andronicus. Her chamber is decorated with the delicious images of Diana bathing, another prototype for peeping spectators. Imogen is disturbingly presented as somehow inviting her violation by willingly participating in these sexualized narratives. She's reading the, the, the sort of really uncomfortable, wrong, uh, perverse logic of this uh, scene is that she's reading about rape and therefore a man is going to come out of the chest and, uh, and, and attack her. She's somehow seen as to be flaunting herself and it's precisely the problem of gender and power within that notion uh, that, that I think the play makes us look at. Um, uh, that that, that uh, uh, you know, it's a really, really uncomfortable moment. By prompting both dangerous desire from Iakimo and from Cloton, her encroaching stepbrother Susa, and violent hatred from her jealous husband, persuaded she's been unfaithful, Imogen makes them look like the same thing, makes desire and violence, uh, desire and hatred look like the same thing. Both, po both Posthumus and Iachimo and Cloton combine in a version of what René Girard 
influentially called mimetic desire, mimetic desire, I want what you want. In a couple of significant 21st century productions with Mark Rylance at the Globe in 2001 and Tom Hiddleston for Cheek by Jowl in 2007, Posthumous and Cloten have been doubled to bring out the symmetry of these uh, uh, threats uh, to uh, Imogen. The bedchamber scene then revisits the voyeuristic complicity both of the Lucrece poem and of the rape of Lavinia in Titus Andronicus. To come back to my point about spectacle and Blackfriars, it's all about looking and deeply uncomfortable for it. Describing the performance he saw in 1611, Simon Foreman was particularly struck by this encounter, recollecting how the Italian He's not very convinced that Iacomo is a Roman, clearly. How the Italian that came from her love conveyed himself into a chest and said it was a chest of plate sent from her love and others to be presented to the king. And in the deepest of the night, she being asleep, he opened the chest and came forth of it and viewed her in her bed and the marks of her body and took away her bracelet and after accused her of adultery to her love, etc. It's much the most detailed bit of uh, Foreman's analysis of his performance. He goes to see about three or four plays. We don't know if he ever stayed to the end, because he's certainly not interested in what happens at the end, but maybe he's gone earlier, or maybe he gives us an example that the ending of Shakespeare's plays is not actually usually the most interesting uh, thing. Um, but he's really into this scene uh, with uh, Iacimo observing the sleeping Imogen. It's a crucial scene for thinking about the representation of women of sexuality and of the new visual or scopic economy encouraged by the dramaturgy of the indoor theatres. So we've got so far different kinds of hybridity, generic, generational, <coughs> representational. So if we come back to the question about the tribute, why does the victorious British king agree to pay tribute, we could say it's a final gesture of hybridity. It replaces conflict with compromise, antagonism with melding, and imagines an ending for the play that prioritises national mingling rather than distinctiveness. Paying the tribute proposes a kind of hybrid colonial model where the willing colony is happy to acknowledge the superiority of the imperial power. Maybe something historical might help amplify this suggestion. Like other ancient Britain plays, most notably King Lear, Cymbeline speaks to King James's interest in reviving the historical idea of Britain as a precedent for uniting his two adjacent but administratively and culturally distinct kingdoms of England and Scotland. John Speed's suggestively named Atlas, the theatre of the Empire of Great Britain, um, published in 1611, so almost contemporaneous with Cymbeline, begins with a map of Britain at the time of the <coughs> English Saxons. So even as it's uh, giving us the kind of geography of, of modern counties, uh, it gives us this historical map of, a, of an old kingdom, Britain, uh, to do this topical work of James's um, uh, union. <coughs> So James and the Jacobean court might feel an affinity with Cymbeline as the king of a united Britain. But James was also strongly associated uh, in his own iconography with the play's absent Roman emperor, Augustus Caesar. Poets scrambled to nominate him a new Caesar 
at his accession in 1603. His coronation medal showed him as Caesar Augustus of Britain, a paradox that perhaps explains some of the contortions of the play called Cymbeline, King of Britain. He is both Cymbeline and Caesar. Maybe the fudge about the tribute then is a topical niggle because Rome is both self and other here. It's the imperial entity against which the plucky kingdom struggles and the ambition towards empire of contemporary England. England had established Jamestown in Virginia in 1607, just a couple of years before this play, and is thus on the cusp uh, of imperial and colonial expansion. The myth of ancient Britain was founded uh, on the myth, was derived from the myth of the foundation of Rome, just as Aeneas, according to Virgil, had founded Rome out of the ashes of Troy, so New Troy, as London was sometimes known, was said to have been founded by Aeneas's son Brutus. Britain was thus the little brother or reincarnation of Rome rather than its conquest. So Britain in this play is both, as the critic <coughs> William Maley has suggested, Little England and Great Britain. It is beleaguered island nation and outward expanding proto-imperial power. This paradox expresses itself most clearly when the island nation and the imperial power are at odds in the matter of the tribute. I want to just uh, spend a little bit more time on that idea, the idea of kind of imperialism, the island nation, and how uh, early modern colonialism might benefit from uh, the, the notion of hybridity which comes from post-colonial studies by thinking about the play's depiction of Wales. Without me. Before King James deployed Britain as the term for his preferred United Kingdoms, the word was mostly associated with Wales. Writers and historians looked to Wales as the site of ancient British values, and where we see uh, the idea of Britons, they're usually uh, Welsh. When Imogen leaves her father's court dressed as a male page, she heads for Wales, and there she encounters, though she does not know them, the, her lost brothers stolen from the court as children. It's these brothers, Guiderius and Avaragus, miraculously, who rout the Roman army, almost it seems without any help at all, and give victory to Britain. And if you look at the depiction of the two brothers in the play, you'll see that they alternate between scenes where they are barbaric and scenes where they're civilised. They're both the saviours of and the threats to civilization. It's an ambivalence that speaks to colonial anxieties about the role of Wales in the English or British polis. Interestingly, as nationalism, devolution and calls for independence grow across the UK, we're probably closer right now to understanding this combination of separateness and union in Great Britain in the early modern period than at any period since. Now, Guiderius and Navaragus are strongly associated with a particular place in Wales, the port <coughs> Milford Haven, uh, a port in southwest Wales now best known as an oil refinery and natural gas uh, on top. There are 17 mentions in the play of Milford Haven. Uh, I looked that up in folgerdigitaltexts.org, which is the best online site for searching Shakespeare's plays. So there are almost as many mentions of Milford Haven <coughs> in Cymbeline 
as there are of Venice in Merchant of Venice or Windsor in Merry Wives of Windsor. I'm going to talk more about the significance of place in Shakespeare's plays when I get to Merry Wives in a couple of weeks. So why do we keep hearing this about Milford Haven? Well, Wales had been absorbed into England during the Tudor period. It's an idealised version of the peaceable relation between dominant and subservient powers that we get in the agreement to pay the tribute at the end of the play. Of course, it looks idealised from the centre of power from England. I don't think it looks so great uh, if you're Welsh. It's also perhaps um, a part of Britain that can more safely engage uh, James's ongoing project in the first years of his English reign to unite England and Scotland. So Wales gives us a way of talking about the relationship between England and Scotland. Um, uh, James is continuing his uh, doomed attempts, really, to unite the kingdoms right up to 1610 when this play is first performed. At the end of Cymbeline, the king calls for the flags of Rome and Britain to fly together, perhaps recalling one of James's most important political rebranding exercises, the proto-Union flag of 1606, which combined the Red Cross of St. George with the Blue Cross of St. Andrew. The role of the ancient kingdom in Britain in this Union project was significant. It seems that Shakespeare identifies Cymbeline's sons with the noble savages of historic Britain, such as the fierce, tattooed warriors pictured in John Speed's Atlas. There's a great picture of a, um, a, an ancient Briton holding the beheaded uh, uh, head of one of his uh, enemies um, and that's exactly what happens in Act 4 scene 2 when the sons kill Cloten and chop his head off. When Imogen approaches the cave in which these men live, her address identifies a kind of colonial encounter between explorer and native. Ho, who's here? If anything that's civil, speak. If savage, take or lend. New World travellers frequently identified the people they encountered in the Americas as analogous to people who had lived in Britain in the ancient past. It was as if uh, they were travelling in space uh, and time at the, same, uh, at the same moment. There's something similar going on here, I think. The barren Wales countryside is related to the ambivalent geography of Virginia, and thus Cymbeline engages with some of the same questions about authority, centre, and margins that we're more used to discussing in relation to the Tempest. The Tempest is seen to be Shakespeare's colonial play. I guess what I'm suggesting is that Cymbeline, uh, very close by in time, might be a more interesting uh, and sustained look at that. Hybridity, again, is a, is a helpful framework here. The borderlands between cultures, the sense of in-betweenness that characterises post-colonial theory by critics such as Homi Baba and Robert Young. The idea that cultures at their borders produce new hybrid forms of understanding and identity. The two princes, the two princes Guiderius and Alviragus, have Celtic names, Cadwal and Polydor. They're border crossers, uh, trickster figures at the intersection of cultures. The Welsh border is both an example of and a metaphor for that kind of creative, uncomfortable mingling that we've seen as characteristic of Cymbeline in its generic political and tonal aspects. And the Roman-British border uh, at the very end of the play is another manifestation of the same thing. So I've been trying to answer the question about why the British agreed to pay tribute to the Romans at the end of Cymbeline as a final and pointed version of the play's impulses to hybridity in terms of genre, in terms of representative and identity politics, in terms of the way it encodes the contested geographies of early modern England, 
ideas of Britain and the new colonialism uh, of the Americas. We could think about that just in the last moments uh, a little bit more about, uh, in the context of the play's final scene more generally. <coughs> Numerically minded critics have identified 24 separate revelations in the play's final scene. Uh, everything gets revealed to us, but curiously, and in a way which is structurally problematic, they're all things that we already know. It takes a long time to have these revelations, uh, even though they were never secret to us in the first place. I Iakimo's confession about his trickery, in particular, revisits that traumatic scene in Imogen's bedchamber in, con in considerable detail, the scene I've already spent time talking about, and that's worth thinking structurally about why the play wants to re re reinstate that, revisit that with, at such length at the end. The whole final scene is an interesting coda uh, to what we've seen of the importance of the visual in the play. There's nothing to look at at all, except for the moment when Posthumus strikes Imogen, thinking uh, that she's a boy. Just a series of revelations that astonish the characters uh, on stage, but merely reiterate the excessive plot for us. Uh, Cymbeline, uh, as a play, seems to glory in that excessiveness uh, by revisiting it all and laying it all out so clearly at the very end. More recent productions have tended to play the scene as ironic or self-conscious rather than straight. But all is not well. Posthumus knocks Imogen to the ground and then appears to forgive her rather than acknowledge that she's done nothing to be forgiven. And that might suggest a kind of new maturity about women's sexual conduct and its significance. It also perpetuates the calumny from which she's tried to escape. So Posthumus says, I forgive you for sleeping with Yakimo, uh, or I forgive you for this bad behaviour, rather than saying there was no bad behaviour. The play's conclusion then, including the tribute paid to the Romans, uh, suggests that the shattered, broken world of loss, war and rejection of Cymbeline can only be healed in self-conscious fantasy, only in the fairy tale world of wicked stepmothers and miraculous victories and birthmarks revealing lost children can Cymbeline find its end, if not quite a conclusion. Perhaps we need to see the pain of the tribute within that uh, as a, a part of the commitment to the happy ending, a play world in which war and politics become knowingly, or perhaps even satirically, disneyfied into a prince and princess romance and a declaration of peace. Next week, I'm going to talk about another problematic ending, and one which the title of its play pleasingly courts, All's Well That Ends Well. I'll be asking, is it? I hope to see you then. Thank you.